0: You will notice that we are in part 13 of our life of worship series where we're going through the lives of King Saul and King David primarily focusing on on David And I entitled today's message when the godly flee and I want to begin by recommending a book to you Um, When I first became a pastor a number of years ago, I went to a pastor that was more seasoned than I and I said Uh, What do I need to know? What would you recommend to me? And he recommended two different books to me. One of them was this It's a book called a tale of three kings by Gene Edwards and What you may enjoy about it is that it's short Uh, It's super short with a lot of white space. It makes you feel super intelligent because you're reading really fast alright, I will tell you that now I'm a really fast reader But if I broke up all the different times because I had to reread it for a class that I'm teaching at Western Seminary, I reread it again just afresh to reteach the class. And it probably took me a total of 30 minutes to get through the whole book. So it's not one of those ones that you're going to be in forever. You can hit it, get through it, kind of take the meat out of it and move on. Um, What it is, is it's a story of King Saul, King David, King Absalom. Those are the three kings. It lines up a lot with what we've been talking about and what we're going to continue to talk about. So it's very timely. It's called, as a subtitle, A Study in Brokenness. What it does is it begins from the premise of the story we covered a couple weeks ago, where David was playing music for Saul and Saul threw a spear at David. Do you remember that? He did that on more than one occasion, The big question that he asks is, what do you do when someone throws a spear at you? And the point is, and it comes from the heart of, what happens when someone in spiritual authority over you hurts you and harms you? Now this comes from a lot of bad stuff that has happened in churches throughout history and is currently happening in our world right now. If you've ever felt like someone in spiritual authority was harming you, You wonder, what do I do about that? Lord, they're wrong, or they're doing this, or I can't believe they're doing that. What if they hurt somebody else? If you're wrestling through those issues, that's really what this book is about. What he said, out of all the different things that you can do, he said, here's what you must do. You must not take the spear out of the wall and throw it back. You must never become good at spear throwing. When it talks about a study in brokenness, it explains how the only way to burn out the Saul that lied in the heart of David was to have him underneath Saul and to be crushed by it, that he might be a good leader. There's a lot of challenges in there. And one of the challenges that we are faced with in this story is that David just slew a giant, but he refused to. To lay a hand on God's anointed, no matter how bad of a king he was. The question was never, can David take Saul out? The answer to that is always, of course he can. And unfortunately for too many of us, we answer questions based on, can I do this? That is a poor question to ask. A better question to ask is, should I do this? Because of course you can. There are times when someone may hurt you and you can utilize your ability in your mind or your tools, your gifts, your natural talents to take the spear out of the wall, throw it back at them and destroy them. You can do that. But at what cost? The question is, should you do that? Is that the type of man or woman that you want to be? The the fill-in-the-blank on the sheet in front of you that was handed out to you is this. It's better to run than to remain as a monster. It's better to run than remain as a monster. To remain and fight bad authority may well turn you into a spear thrower and you may find yourself acting just as mad as the person that is harming you Would you turn with me to 1st Samuel chapter 21 verse 1 1st Samuel 21 1 and the Bible's handed out to you it's page 207 It makes it a little easier to kind of catch up with And what we're going to do is we're going to be covering chapters 21, 22, 23, and 24 That's why we have, a, <laughs> have to get started right off the bat Now, of course, the only way we're going to do this is we're going to read through portions and study them line by line. Then we're going to paraphrase pieces, dive in, hit a couple parts here and there, then jump back out and read through it. We're going to be doing that all morning together with our remaining time. And we will get, hopefully, a number of different pieces that God may want to settle into your spirit that you might grow today. I'm glad to see you, but I'd like to pray for our time. All right, let's do that. Heavenly Father, we sit underneath your authority and we ask that you would teach us, that you would guide us, that you would transform us. Lord, help us to sort out what the pastor has to say, that, Father, on the parts that are your word, allow them to dwell richly within us, the parts that are shared, that are opinion. Lord, help us to sift, for we seek to learn from you, Father, alone, not from any man or any woman per se. But we ask, Lord, that you would teach us in our heart directly. We submit ourselves under your teaching. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, now, last disclaimer before I begin. We're going to have some fun this morning, all right? So if you're a grouch, lighten up, all right? So if you came out, you woke up on the wrong side of the bed and you're a little bit grumpy, we're going to kind of have some fun with it because really we're going through large amounts of material And the only way to do that and have any fun with it is to look at it with a slightly different perspective. Now, you are here in this church. That means you have to listen to me. All right? Don't even think about getting up and leaving in the middle of it. I will call you out. All right? No, I won't really do that. I'm just kidding. So let's go ahead and start this. Oh, Mike, how dare you? Why? I knew if anyone was going to do it, it had to be Mike right in the front row. All right. Mike. All right. Let's begin. It says David went to Nob. Now it's probably Nob, but that's not funny. So what we're going to do is we're sticking with Nob today. All right. That makes me laugh. So <laughs> David went to Nob. We have no idea where it is. We know it's near Jerusalem and it was the city of the priest, whatever that means. And he went there to Ahimelech the priest. Ahimelech is actually the great-grandson of the priest Eli. Everybody remember what he was like? He was a horrible leader. He was the reason why the whole priesthood was going down the tubes. His sons were corrupt. He was basically the whole reason why the spiritual system was just messed up. Now. God said I'm going to take you out of the spiritual lineage. I'm going to stop your family from being priests But he hasn't fully done that yet. That will not close until David's son Solomon However, his family line is going to take a massive hit in the stories we're going to cover today But what it appears is that Eli's family went south and they continue to do the priest thing So Ahimelech is part of that team. All right so David went to Nob to Ahimelech the priest, and Ahimelech trembled when he met David, and he said, Why are you alone? Why is no one with you? All right, why is he paranoid? It's kind of weird questions to ask somebody. Well, because the giant killer just walked in. Now, you've got to remember, David is a national champion. He just killed the Philistine giant, Goliath, not that long ago. Songs have been sung about how powerful he is. But there's whisperings all throughout the kingdom that he's at odds with the king. That King Saul doesn't like him anymore. They're never sure. Is he on Saul's side? Is Saul on his side? What's going on? They have two big dogs in their world and they're not sure they're getting along. So everybody's a little bit on edge. Because if Saul doesn't like someone, he tries to kill them. Yeah? So the first thing Ahimelech realizes is that if David walks into town... Either he's on Saul's team, and it's going to go well, or he's not, and it's going to go badly. So right off the bat, he's like, hey, man, what are you doing here? Why are you here? Is everything okay? Now listen to how David handles this situation. Remember, David is on the run from Saul. Saul is trying to kill him. No, he's not on Saul's side. And yes, he's trying to run and hide. So what does David do? Well, of course, he lies. Take a look at the next line. David answered Ahimelech the priest. The king has charged me with a certain matter. And he said to me, no one is to know anything about your mission or your instructions. As for my men, I've told them to meet me in a certain place. Okay, you cannot be more vague than that. This is the worst lie in the history of the Bible. Here's what he just said. He goes, hey, so are you here on behalf of the king? And he's like, you know what? It's secret. I'm doing something. I'm going somewhere. And my men that I do not want to tell you anything about will meet me there. And you're like, what? What? you're not saying anything. I don't even know what that means, right? So he's being all vague. Now he's just flat out lying because he knows that a won't help him out if he knows that he's at odds with Saul. So instead of having the faith that he had with Goliath, he completely bails out and starts lying. And isn't it ironic how we can watch people in the Bible that look so much like us be so strong in faith on one day and so weak in faith on another day? On one day, we're ready to die for Jesus, and on the other day, we're not quite sure who Jesus is anymore. Yeah? We're all over the map. David is exactly the same way. And right here, his lack of faith is going to cost a great deal. Let's keep following the story. He says, now then, let's not talk about my mission, right? Uh, What do you have on hand? Meaning I need some provisions, all right? Give me uh, five loaves of bread. Fries and a shake, right? He just starts ordering, okay, or whatever you can find. But the priest answered, David, listen, I don't have any ordinary bread on hand. However, there's some consecrated bread here. Now, let's pause. What's consecrated bread? Consecrated bread means bread set aside for God. Holy bread. That's where it comes from. But we have a Hollywood view on what holy stuff means, We are all very aware from Hollywood that holy water is what you shoot at a vampire to make his skin burn, right? We all know that stuff. Okay, that's not accurate. What holy stuff is, is that it's all about using it for God's stuff, right? So in the tabernacle where the Ark of God was, there was a table there next to the lampstand and the altar of incense. And on that table, there are 12 fresh bread Loaves of unleavened bread placed every morning as an offering one for every tribe of israel Offered before god they switch it out every morning brand new bread comes in When that bread is on that table, it's god's bread don't touch his bread God's very clear on get away from my stuff When they put new bread for god god's like all right i'm done with that you can have that right Then it's supposed to shift over only to the priests They are then supposed to eat the leftover God bread or day old God bread. Yeah, this is what we're talking about. Listen, I have some holy bread left over that's priests. And although you're not supposed to technically eat it, I understand you're in desperate situations. So we'll bend the rules a little bit, but I don't want to bend them too far. Tell me your men are clean, right? Look at the next phrase. He said, provided that the men have kept themselves from women. That means make sure they're ceremonially clean. I'm already stretching it, Dave. Let's not push it too far. Dave's response is, indeed, women have been kept from us as usual whenever I set out. The men's things are holy, even on missions that are not holy. How much more so today? So the priest gave him the consecrated bread, since there was no bread except the bread of the presence that had been removed from before the Lord and replaced by hot bread on the day that it was taken away. Now, if you remember in the New Testament, Jesus actually refers to this story directly. He and his disciples are walking through on the Sabbath and they're pulling off the grains and eating it. And they try to bust him. What are you doing eating on the Sabbath? Jesus stops him and said, do you remember the David incident when he ate the bread? In other words, the point is, if it's not directly God's stuff, yes, you can partake of it because really... The Sabbath is about keeping men holy and healthy, but it's not about destroying them. Remember they got all mad at Jesus for healing on the Sabbath? How dare you? And he said, what are you talking about? Sabbath is for healing. Sabbath is not to be so legalistic, you're focused on something else and you're hurting people in the process. It's not about this religion stuff. Jesus was trying to bring a whole new light to it. And he used this story. Let's keep going. Now, one of Saul's servants was there that day, detained before the Lord. Now, remember, David's on the run from Saul, so we have a spy in the midst. Who is this guy? Well, we can either use his real name or we can change it. I would like to change it this morning. His name is now Doug. Look at the next line. His name was Doug the Edomite. Now, it's technically Doeg, but that's lame. We're going to go ahead and go with Doug. Now, he is Saul's head shepherd, right? Now, you can imagine, if you're running a whole nation, you probably have thousands and thousands of shepherds. Who's the head guy that try to keep, keep everything nailed down? That's this guy. He's a big dog. He's around Saul a lot. He's in Saul's presence. He is in the temple. But notice that he's not an Israelite by birth. He is an Edomite. He came down through the line of Esau. Remember Esau's brother Jacob? Jacob's where the Israelites went down, Esau is where the Edomites went down. He is a convert to Judaism. He is now in the temple for whatever reason, and it says he was detained before the Lord. Most scholars believe that that means he was doing something in the temple and ran up against the Sabbath and and was not able to travel to move on, so he had to hang out in the temple buying time. While he's there, David, his boss's enemy comes running in and has this dialogue. He's watching and taking notes. David asked the priest Ahimelech, don't you have a spear or a sword here? I haven't brought my sword or any other weapon Um, because the king's business was urgent. Okay, he's still lying and making stuff up, but he needs a weapon to defend himself. Now, of course, the priest is going to go, no, Dave, I don't have weapons. I'm a priest. Okay, but look at the reply. The sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Elah is here. Remember, you gave it to me, right? It's wrapped in a cloth behind the holy priest garment, the ephod. If you want it, take it. There's no sword here but that one. David said, there's none like it. Great. Give it to me. Takes the sword and takes off running out the door. Then Dave concocts a plan, which I would suggest is probably the worst plan in his whole history. What he decides to do is say, Saul's going to kill me if I stay in Israelite territory. People will hand me over. What I need to do is get out of the country. He runs over into the Philistine camp and runs to go hide in Gath. Okay, what in the world are you thinking, buddy? Why? Whose sword are you carrying? Goliath, where was Goliath born? Gath, you don't walk into his hometown with his sword, whom you just killed, and they're the enemies, and he walks in, he's like, hey, can I hang out with you guys for a while? (laughs) No, you can't. You're an enemy of ours. It says King Achish, he comes in, that was the title of the Philistine leaders. He comes in, and he's like, what do you think you're doing here? I know you. I've heard your song on the radio. (laughs) Everybody remember the song? Saul's killed his thousands. David killed his ten thousands. He's like, hey, a lot of those guys were mine, buddy. So no, you cannot hang out here. He seizes him and brings him into captivity. Now, that kind of backfired. That was not exactly the plan. So David now has to come up with plan B so they don't kill him because that would ruin everything. So he decides to be insane. Go ahead and look into your uh, Bibles here and let's pick up the verse 1 Samuel 21, 13. Take a look at that one. So he pretended to be insane in their presence. And while he was in their hands, he acted like a madman, making marks on the doors of the gate and letting saliva run down his beard. (laughs) He's pretty good at this, right? So he's out there, ah, gnawing on wood, right? You know, and they're like, whoa, what happened to this guy? No wonder he came to his enemies. He's crazy. Now, the reason why this worked... Is because in some pagan cultures of the time They believe that insanity Was a curse from the gods And if the gods are involved in cursing them Don't touch them Don't mess with them Leave them alone You don't hurt the crazy people So David's like oh look at me I'm crazy Right and he's got this This frothing at the mouth thing going on Right because he's trying to stay alive It was during this time That he wrote Psalm 34 and 56. What did he say in those psalms? Take a look at this, because his life is in danger, and he's doing everything he can to strain, to keep himself alive. This is what it says. These are a few things that he says. When I'm afraid, I will trust in you. What ultimately can mortal man do to me if God's on my side? And God is near his own. Especially those like me that are broken hearted and crushed in spirit Does god rescue him? Yes, he does at some point the king gets sick of this and goes hey guys come here for a second Do we not have enough crazy people in our town? I do not need another one. So mr gnawing wood guy I don't need him around get him out of here and they kick david out and david gets to flee and gets away again well he runs to a cave called Adullam, spends the night in this stronghold where he's hiding. And then look at verse 21, uh, tw- chapter 22, verse 1. Take a look at this. When his brothers and his father's household heard about it, they went down to him there. Now, Why that's intriguing to me is I almost went, oh, how cute. His family used to hate him and now they're coming to help him out. That's really sweet, but I don't think that's why they're there. Does everybody remember how much they dislike David? They dislike him because he was anointed in their presence. They dislike him because now he's a giant killer and he's a hero. They dislike him. Remember, he was always the kid they shoved away into the fields. Why are they going down to him? Here's my best guess. If the king of the nation is trying to kill someone, we have learned that he doesn't just kill them, he kills their whole family. Who's in danger? His family. His family. While he's running away from other people And worried about his own problems His family comes down to be shielded by him You know this, what this sounds like? Joseph Remember Joseph's brother sold him into slavery And they wanted him dead But later on he had to provide them grain During the famine And he went through that whole I don't like you but God's asking me to protect you And I don't know what to do with all this dysfunction Do you remember that? Same thing here David's wrestling with it. He accepts them in and shields them. Mom, dad, brothers, family. The problem is, is now his crew is getting bigger. Right there it says, and all the men that were in distress, that were in debt to Saul, or were angry at Saul, all came down and started hanging out with David. So, he's hanging out in his cave, little cave door knock. Right. That's a horrible knock. Hold on. There we go. OK, right. As they knock on the cave door, he opens the door and hears some screwed up guy. And He's like, man, I'm totally in debt. Can I hang with you? It's like, what? In my cave? Yeah. I don't know. Do we got room? Yeah. All right. Come on in. Knock, knock, knock. Another guy comes up. Hey, I hate Saul. You hate Saul. We have something in common, dude. Can I hang out with you? Uh, sure. He gets 400 of them. He Over and over, all these weird, screwed up people. It's almost like God's, uh, that David's saying, God, can't I have one normal guy? can I just have anybody maybe that's good at what they do? Why do I have to have all these weirdos show up? He gets this ragtag, motley crew bunch of 400 men. They're all hanging out. Well, now you can't just hang out in a cave. Now you can't hide very easy when you're moving 400 people. So he starts going on the move as a nomad. The problem is his mom and dad are with him. Mom and dad cannot be boulder climbing, right, and running and hiding and doing this. They're far older than he is. Remember, David now is an adult man, and he's the youngest of all these boys. His parents cannot be playing this game. So he decides to go hand them off into a safe location. He goes down to one of the Israelite enemy camps known as the Moabites, right? Israel fights the Moabites. Israel fights the Ammonites. Actually, Israel fights anyites. So he goes down. Why would they ever allow him to hide his parents there? Because quite frankly, they don't like him and he's the enemy because of who his great grandmother is. Who's his great grandma? Ruth, the Moabitess. They can go back and say, this is where my grandma's from. She's from your hometown. Can we go back and stay with you? They allow them to do so. And David and his men keep on the move. All right. Let's pick up the story. While he's on the run, a prophet shows up named Gad. Says, Dave, you've got to go back to your home tribe of Judah. You're going to get killed out here. I'm just warning you. You need to go back. Why is that significant? Because not only did Samuel contact David, the great prophet, but now he has another prophet contacting him. What you're seeing is a shift from all the prophets moving away from Saul and gravitating towards David. That's important because God is surrounding him to be the next king. Prophets speak for who? God. And if God's guys are coming around you, that's a good sign. All right? So then, meanwhile, back at the ranch, Saul's sitting under a tamarisk tree with a spear in his hand, it says, which is funny because he's always got a spear in his hand because he throws it at people when he gets angry. Well, he decides to have another tirade. He has all his leaders around him, and he starts going, you're all useless. How come we can't find David? I'm the king of this nation. Nobody's on my side. You're all on David's side. And his paranoia just starts going crazy. He's going, none of you care about me. And he just starts having a big pity party, right? Finally, he's like, who has any information where we can find this kid? And everything's quiet. And then one guy steps forward. Who's that? Doug. (laughs) Doug shows up. Uh, excuse me king, I got info Alright, what do you got? Well, weirdest thing I was down in temple doing my temple things And all of a sudden David comes running in He goes up to the priest and he's like Well, I'm on this mission I totally know he's lying because he's not with us Then he tells the priest, no, I'm on this secret mission For the king and blah, blah, blah And then the the priest gives him supplies He gives him food, he gives him a sword I think that guy's on David's side so I was like, really? The priests are on his side. I'll see about that. He makes a contact down to Ahimelech and he says, Ahimelech, I need a meeting with you. Oh, by the way, I need all 85 priests to show up. I need you and your whole father's family. Everybody shows up to this meeting. Why? I'll tell you later. Ahimelech shows up and he says, what do you think you're doing? Why are you siding with David? And Ahimelech's like, where'd you find that out from? He's like, Doug. Why are you on his side? Well, quite frankly, King, because he's a good guy. He's always been loyal to you. Why would I assume anything else? He's always been on your team. I don't know anything about this whole you guys are at odds thing. And quite frankly... I've always interceded for him, for the the Lord. And he's always on your team. So why wouldn't I help him out? I'm not a part of any great conspiracy, man. I'm just doing what God's asking me to do. Saul says, I want you dead. Soldiers, grabs all his soldiers, kill them all. Slaughter everybody. Now, what did the soldiers do? Nothing. There is no way in the world... They're going to step forward and kill the priests of God. You know how they're already with a bad guy. They already know he's slightly going insane. And we will do a lot of things for bad leaders. But sometimes you hit a line and you go, there's no way I'm doing that. I am not going to become evil like that. So they wouldn't do it. He's like, who is going to step up? Who is on my side? Who will kill these wicked men that are traitors against me? Who stands up? Doug. Doug steps forward, slaughters everybody, kills all 85 priests with his own hand, goes back and burns down their whole city, all their families, all their livestock and everything. You want to be that guy? Man, you do not want to be against God like that. One guy escapes and he runs off to go find David. Saul's still on the war path. It's right here that David writes Psalm 52. Remember, after everything keeps getting worse and worse and worse, how does he make it through these times? Well, Psalm 52, here's a couple thoughts. He says, the righteous will someday laugh at the man who trusted in his wealth and grew strong by destroying others. Does that make any sense to you? Have you ever seen a leader in your life that grows strong by destroying everyone around them? In your job, he keeps rising up in the company by stepping on everyone else, by stabbing him in the back, and by undercutting them. David said, regardless of how successful they look now, they will not stand. I want to be on the right side. He goes on, he said, I am trusting in God. And quite frankly, internally, I am flourishing in his house despite my circumstances. So I will praise you, Lord. I will hope in your name. Is this how you react to bad situations? I don't react all that awesome to these situations. If I have somebody coming to kill me, is my first reaction to try to turn it to praise? Is my reaction to say, you know what, ultimately they're never going to last. I know that God is bigger than all that. Do you trust in God like that? Because that's a challenge to me. Let's pick up the story in chapter 22, verse 20. But Abiathar, a son of Ahimelech, the priest, escaped and fled to join David. So now David not only has prophets coming to his aid, but priests as well. He told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. Then David said to Abiathar that day when Doug the Edomite was there, I knew he'd be sure to tell Saul. You know what? I'm responsible for the death of your father's whole family. Listen up. Stay with me. Don't be afraid. The man who's seeking your life, well, he's seeking mine also. You'll be safe with me. Here's something that's so incredible about what David just did. He didn't push it off on Saul. Well, the only reason why your family got killed is because Saul was after me and blah, blah, blah. He owned it. One of the things about david is he may justify all kinds of crazy lies and deception and doing his own thing But when he's confronted face to face with his sin, he owns it Are you the type of person that you view your whole life as everybody else's fault? It's never you right you always got to push it on somebody else Well, my life's miserable because so-and-so and then this was unfair and this was unfair when are you gonna own your peace? David had a million reasons for why he was in this situation. But what did he do? He lied and it killed people. And he darn well knew it. He knew the spy was there. But he was so locked up in his own drama, he couldn't for a moment think otherwise. He learns from this lesson. And he becomes a different man because of it. Remember the whole David and Bathsheba story? We're going to study in a little bit. When Nathan the prophet confronts him with his sin, what does he do? He owns it and falls down before God. Will you, will I own our part in our sin? That's a life of worship. It's not that you don't sin. It's what are you going to do with it? Yeah? Are you going to bring it back to Jesus? It says, chapter 23, verse 1, When David was told, look, the Philistines are fighting against the city of Calah, and they're looting the threshing floors. That's just south of Bethlehem. He inquired of the Lord saying, shall I go and attack the Philistines? Pause. What? You're on the run, dude. You're out there running around trying to keep your own life. You're trying to do everything you can to stay alive. You've got this own group of guys you have to watch out for. And you catch wind that Israelites are being attacked by the enemy and you want to get involved? Remember I told you that his heart changed? He has always been a deliverer. And this time he said, My insincerity costs the lives of these priests. I am a man of the people. I do not use other people for my benefit. I'm inconvenienced, not them. God, do I need to jump in on this one? No wonder he's such a wonderful king. Even despite his own problems, he's at least thinking now about the people. So he wants to jump in as a deliverer and bring his crew to go help him out. So we inquire from God. Do you ever inquire from God? Or is it always a last shot when something falls apart? Then you go, God, what should I have done? He asked right up front, God, should I go attack the Philistines and save Kayla? The Lord said, yep, go for it. But then his men said, hold on, Dave, before you take that advice, which is not wise, they said, wait, here in Judah, in our own tribe, we're already afraid, buddy. How much more than if we go outside our territory, go to the city of Kayla and fight the Philistine forces? And Dave's like, good point. Man, that is a terrible idea. Wait, God, what should I do? Should I go attack him? And God goes, you know what? It's really funny. I was actually right the first time. <laughs> yeah, of course you should go. Stop asking me twice. Right? So the Lord answered him, go down to Kayla for I'm going to give the Philistines into your hand. So David and this man went to Kayla. They fought the Philistines, carried off the livestock. He inflicted heavy losses on the Philistines and saved the people of Kayla. How did he know God's will? Look at the next phrase. Now Abiathar, son of Ahimelech, had brought the ephod down with him when he fled to David in Kayla. The ephod was a priestly robe that contained the Urim and the Thummim. That was the way they would make decisions. It was a... Black ball and a white ball. They would have it in their robe and they would mix them up and say, God, and you would only do this through a priest. God, I have a question. Should I go to fight? And he would draw out one of the items. They believed that white was yes, black was no. And so he would say, yes, that is what you are supposed to do. Now, of course, the priest got a little bit more information. I'm going to put them into your hands and blah, blah, blah. But David was checking in with God. So David, the word gets out that David's down in Cala in a city where Saul can catch him. Saul literally says this phrase, God has handed David over to me. Really? He's that delusional that he believes that God is still on his side. Have you ever been so delusional that you're completely anti-God? You're doing your own thing. You're completely wrapped up in selfishness, but you're quite convinced that God is still operating to help you out. No, that's not what God's doing. He's completely mad. So he and his company go down to siege the city. They're going to kill everybody to get to David. David then says, oh no, I hear that Saul is coming. Let me go check with God. God, is Saul coming to kill me? Yep. God, will this city panic and hand me over and throw me under the bus? Yep. Man, this isn't going well. All right, guys, we got to get out of here. If we stay here, he's going to kill everyone. I cannot have that blood on my hands. Let's get out of here. They bail out, and so when Saul comes down, he goes around the city and nobody gets hurt. Once again, David doesn't use human shields. David does not throw other people in front; he takes the hit himself. Right? Saul skips Caleb. Listen to this phrase: He thought God was on his side, but First Samuel twenty-three, fourteen. Day after day, Saul searched for David, but God did not give David into his hands. It's the complete opposite of what Saul thought. So David runs into the desert. Who tracks him down? But Jonathan. Everybody remember Jonathan? That is Saul's oldest son who has more faith than David and Saul combined. Dave, Jonathan is amazing. Incredible warrior. Incredibly godly man. He does in one day what Saul can't do in years. He goes and finds David immediately. Hey, here he is. Right on. Hey, Dave, how you doing? Right? Walks right up to him. And here's what it says. It says, and he helped David find strength in God. Would you look at chapter twenty-three, seventeen? How did he help him find strength in God? Listen to what he says to him. Side note, do you have anyone in your life that during your dark times will come in alongside you? Because I am meeting more and more people in this church and friends outside of this church that have no friends. You have allowed yourself to isolate out. Well, no one will hang with me. No one can stick with me. No one will do that. You know what? It's an art form to be a good friend. There's a reason you don't have any friends. Change. Because if you do not have any friends, you're at least going to be unhealthy. At most, it will kill you. You have to have people around you that will encourage you, back you up, and solidify your walk with God. Because dark times come to everybody. In this dark time, Jonathan comes in and says this phrase. This is the last recorded conversation they will ever have. The next time we hear Jonathan is in chapter 31 and he dies. This is his last words to David. Check this out. Don't be afraid, he said. My father Saul will not lay a hand on you. You will be king over Israel. And I, the prince, will be second to you. Even my father Saul... Knows this If Saul knows that Why is he acting the way he is Is it because he's insane Or is it because he's a lot like us Because there's a lot of things that you know And you're not living like it You know darn well certain things about God And you're still doing what you're doing It's called inconsistency It's called lack of integrity It's called us They make a covenant Jonathan goes back home Well, all the people of the area go and sell David out. During that time, when more abandonment by other people, David writes Psalm 54. He says, Save me, O God, and vindicate me, for you are my help. You sustain me. I will praise you, for you have always been the one to rescue me from trouble. Saul gets the intelligence on where David is. He says, Go back and make sure you know exactly where he is so I can kill him. Well, he gets that information. Saul and his team begin to close in. He's on one side of the mountain. David's on the other side of the mountain. He's just about to catch him when he receives word that the Philistines have attacked back home. He has to bail out on that and run back home. And David is saved again by God. Over and over and over. David runs down to a place called En Gedi. And Getty is down by the Dead Sea in the middle of nowhere. It's the only fresh spring that comes out of the ground. It is the only lush place, but it has tremendous amount of mountains and rocks and caves to hide in. David runs there. Saul hears about it and here comes the most important story. Saul takes 3000 of his best warriors. He's 18 to go down and attack David. While David knows that he's on his way, David writes Psalm 57. And says, Lord, my true hiding place is in your wings. I am surrounded by lions, God. Bring help down from heaven. And let your glory fill the earth. Even in this moment, I will stir up praise in my heart. I will write songs to you, for your love is great. Sure enough, Saul arrives into town. It's been a long ride. He has to go to the bathroom. This is what I love about Scripture. He goes into a cave. Because he's going to be a while. Probably takes a book. (laughs) Goes into the cave. Goes into the cave. He's got big robes on. So he throws the robes back out, right? And he starts going about his business. Well, he happened to go squat in a cave where David and his buddies are. So he walks right into the cave. And Dave's, Dave's buddies are like, Dave, Saul's here. He's like, I know. It's a cave, dude. What am I looking at, right? Of course he's here. Hey, you know what? This is the time... That God said He would hand the king over to you, kill him." Dave's like, "What? No? I, like, no, I don't think so. No, I don't think that's what it's about. But hold on a second, hold on, I have a different plan. Dave crawls over to him, and he's still squatting, this guy's going for a while. He cuts off a corner of his robe. Now, I don't know what book he was reading, but clearly, how do you not know when a guy's going eh, 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 cutting off a corner of your robe? You really can't notice that in the cave? Dave takes back and he's like, you guys, look what I got. I got a corner of his robe. And the guys are like, why? You're supposed to kill him, not cut off his clothes. Then David, it says, was conscience stricken because he was really going to try to mess with Saul and show, listen, man, I'm above you. He completely is cut to the heart, rebukes his men. Don't you dare touch him. I already ruined it. Saul comes out of the cave. David comes running after him, falls face down on the ground. That's important for two reasons. Number one, it shows humility. Number two, it's not a defensible position. If you lay face down on the ground, the guy can run and kill you. You can't get up in time to fight back. He puts himself completely at Saul's mercy, says, My Lord, the king, why are you listening to lies? No, I'm not a bad guy. I've never been against you. You hunt me down like a dog. You know what? You can't live like that. You cannot come after me like that because I'm not against you. But you're not listening to me. So you know what? We're going to leave it to God. God will judge between you and I. But I will not become like you. Intriguing. Look at verse 16 of chapter 24 as we close up. When David finished saying this, Saul asked, Is that your voice, David, my son? And he wept aloud. What is with this guy? He was just coming to kill him. He's all over the map emotionally. And you're going to realize even this doesn't last too long. You are more righteous than I, David, he said. You have treated me well, but I have treated you badly. You have just now told me of the good you did to me. The Lord delivered me into your hands, but you did not kill me. When a man finds his enemy, does he let him get away unharmed? May the Lord reward you well for the way you treated me today. I know that you will surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. That's powerful, but he's still not living like it. Now swear to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants or wipe out my name from my father's family. And David gave his oath to Saul, which he kept. Then Saul returned home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. What's wrong with that picture? Saul just admitted that the throne is David's. And Saul went back to the palace and said, but you're not getting it today. He could not let go of the throne Despite reality, despite revelation from God, despite everything he knew, he couldn't let go. What should he have done? He should have invited David back to the palace, got off the chair, and said, let me back up what God's doing in you. And he couldn't do it. What do we do when we're challenged? When do we run When do we stand? That's a tough question, yeah? As a matter of fact, it's tough because the Bible is full of stories of both. Daniel stood up to the king under penalty of death and was thrown in the lion's den. But Mary and Joseph fled from the king trying to kill them. Joseph ran from Potiphar's wife who's trying to get him to sin. But Paul teaches that in the face of sin, we should take our stand and not move. Moses ran from Pharaoh at 40, stood up to him at 80. When do we run? When do we stand? The truth is there are no hard and fast facts. David discerned it by checking in with God on a moment by moment basis. And we have to do the exact same thing. Sometimes you run. Sometimes you stand. But let God make that determination, not your anger. Anger doesn't make that call. God makes that call. Finally, I'll say this. Don't ever take a stand when standing will leave you just as wicked as your attacker. There is a time to run and it's when it's going to destroy you and make you evil. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for today. And Lord, there is so much in your word that comes firing at us And we see real lives acted out before us and we think, wow, it's just like me. Change us, heal us, guide us, for we are yours. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.